There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped at 10th and Grinch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon. And with me tonight is retired detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? Doing pretty good, Billy. How are you doing? Pretty good. You know, it's what the old expression, what goes around, comes around. Here we are. We first started covering this case of the, the Alec Murdoch case. Uh, I believe it was June 7th. 2021, more than a year and a half ago. And that's how long this case has taken to come to trial. And since then, it's been like a the National Enquirer. It's been like People Magazine. It's been like every possible thing that can happen in this small South Carolina town has occurred. Uh, the twists and turns in this case are just incredible. Just things that you can't believe this. When we always say the truth is much stranger than fiction. That happens to be the truth, that real life is much more unbelievable than things that writers can make up. I don't think a writer could make this up because it, it would be seen as outrageous that that couldn't happen. But guess what? It did happen, and it does happen. What do you think, Phil? Yes, absolutely. This case, right from the beginning, as we had stated, has all the salacious details of almost like a soap opera. And again, you're making a point, Billy, that even a good writer couldn't put all of the components together that are involved in this case. You have a three or four generation dynasty in South Carolina with the Murdoch family. Uh, they actually controlled uh, the prosecutor's office for a number of years uh, when the case first started within uh, a few weeks of all of the different things that went on, I'm talking about from the time of the double homicide, the actual prosecutor had to recuse himself from the investigation based on the fact that uh, he must have had uh, personal contact and uh, friendship with uh, the Murdoch family. So again, um, it sounds like something right out of uh, a great novel or a uh, made-for-television movie. And who knows, maybe down the line, uh, there will be books written or television projects done on this case. There's so many things in regards to the timeline. I want to go through it rather quickly. The criminal case against Alex Murdoch, the former lawyer accused of killing his wife and son, is part of a web of accusations, investigations, and lawsuits that have accompanied the downfall of a member of South Carolina's most prominent dynasties. Mr. Murdoch, was for years a well-known lawyer specializing in civil litigation. His family law firm, based in the tiny town of Hampton, was considered a powerhouse on the state plaintiff's bar, and his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather had all served as the top prosecutors across a wide region of the state. Here's a timeline of the major events related to this case. July 8, 2015, the body of Stephen Smith, 19, was found on Sandy Run Road in Hampton County, South Carolina, his death was ruled a hit and run, but his family had lingering questions. February 26, 2018, Gloria Satterfield, 57, worked as a housekeeper and a nanny for the Murdoch family for about a quarter of a century, died about two weeks after she was reported to have fallen on the front stairs 
of the family's hunting property. February 2014, 2019, Alec Murdoch's younger son, Paul, who was then 19, drunkenly crashed the family boat into a bridge and he threw some of his passengers into the water. The body of one passenger, Mallory Beach, 19, was found a week later. Miss Beach's parents would later sue Alec Murdoch, bringing pressure on him to reveal details of his finances. April 18, 2019, Paul Murdoch was charged with three felony counts in connection with the deadly boat crash. He later pled guilty. June 7, 2021, Mr. Murdoch called 911 to report that his wife Maggie and son Paul had been shot at the family's hunting property in Island Town, a rural hamlet about 65 miles west of Charleston. Uh, June 22nd, state officials announced that they were reopening investigations into the death of Mr. Smith, the teenager who died in 2015, based on information gathered during investigations into the murders of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. Uh, there's just, there's, it just doesn't end. It just continues and continues. One of the things we need to recognize is that Alec Murdoch was on the scene of the death of his wife and his son, Paul. He tried to cover it up in many ways, but he couldn't hide that his cell phone was there. He made up several different alibis. Both weapons used were owned by the Murdoch family. Uh, there's other smoking gun type information. But right now, of course, the attorneys are doing battle. They're going to war over this and what did happen, what didn't happen. Of course, Alec Murdoch has a top attorney who's also been in South Carolina society, friend of the Clintons. Uh, he's 74 years old. You can see he's a crusty old attorney, but you can see he's very good. Yes, Billy. Uh, I did see him on the uh, on the news earlier today, and uh, I watched some of the open opening statement yesterday uh, by the prosecutor, who's actually the Attorney General of South Carolina or works for the Attorney General's office. Um, uh, he did note several things, like you said, the cell phone technology is going to place Alec Murdoch in and around the location where the murders took place. At the time, we believe the murders took place. He obviously called 911, so he put his, put himself there at some point. But we believe the uh, murders took place before that, and his cell phone's going to place him there. There's also going to be forensic evidence they talked about uh, with regard to clothing that was found at the location. So again, all of the uh, pieces of evidence will come together. Like you stated, the guns were owned by the Murdoch family. Uh, the area was uh, a dog kennel where the murders actually took place on a property. I guess you could consider it some type of a hunting lodge, they called it. So again, uh, probably very secluded. Uh, you know, the reason that uh, Maggie and Paul were there is really not determined as of yet. Perhaps it'll come out why they were at the location. But uh, with all of the different things that are noted in previous to the homicide uh, regarding Alec Murdoch, that he had a very severe drug problem, financial issues. The son was involved in the boating accidents. There was the cover-up of the Satterfield case where he embezzled money from an insurance policy that was uh, paid out uh, uh, based on the death of uh, the, the uh, the uh, the housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield. On and on we go. He was shortly after the uh, the double homicide, he was disbarred as an attorney in the state of South Carolina based on embezzling uh, money from the law firm that he worked for. And uh, he was actually fired from the law firm subsequent to that. Statements were made by the law firm that they didn't condone. 
any of the behavior that was uh, exhibited by Alec Murdoch. So again, uh, if you take all of those things, put all these components together, uh, plus the wife had visited with and consulted with a divorce attorney prior to the uh, prior to the double homicide. I don't think we have that far to go to stretch to believe that uh, the person that is being charged with the case, Alec Murdoch, is the one responsible for the double homicide. This is from court this uh, today. That there was a theory that Paul had shot his mother and then shot himself. Is that correct? That's out on the scene. Yes. She had been shot multiple times. Um, and he had been shot with a shotgun, at least one of the shots. Uh, we all believe was upward. That's why his brains were all over the ceiling. That part, I don't know. I'm, I wasn't involved in that part of at the scene. I did not discuss anything being shot upward. I don't recall saying that. Did you hear discussions to that of your fellow officers? Of a shot being fired upward? Yeah. That's what it looked like they were saying, yes. Okay. And further, um, I think y'all in front of you, one of the officers saying that brains are on the ceiling, there's blood all over the place, correct? I don't recall them saying brain was upward. I, I don't recall. You know, folks, watching this, you also have to realize you, on the screen was Alec Murdoch. While this horrendous testimony is being given by a investigator, a detective, and he don't you believe for one second he's not coached in how to act. How would you act when you're hearing that your son's brains was uh, was splattered all over the place? How are you going to act when that's read back to you? And the point being also is, is that potentially, I mean, he's the guy that did it. You know, so how would I mean if you believe he's guilty? Uh, how how would you act? How is he told to act by his attorney? So all of these horrendous things are coming out in the courtroom, and there are cameras in the courtroom. A lot of you folks talk about that you 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 think it's a good thing. I personally think it's a bad thing, but. Um, that's not my my choice in this case. Here we have cameras in the courtroom, and Alec Murdoch is coached, of course, by his attorney. When you hear this type of testimony, you better react to it. And you could see he put his head down. He almost feigned tears. And that's all the show for the jury. You know, Billy, uh, I agree with you about the cameras in the courtroom. I'm not a big fan of that. It does make for good news and television. Uh, you know, it's very salacious, this case. Uh, most cases that have been, uh, you know, uh, public with the cameras, uh, they just, I don't know if uh, the person that's being charged with the crime actually gets a fair trial based on that. There's a little bit too much, uh, you know, uh, coverage on, on the, uh, on the facts of the case. And perhaps, uh, it could start conspiracy theories and things like that. So I agree with you on that. One of the things that I wanted to make a point about, they're talking about, and I believe it was introduced by the defense that possibly it was a murder-suicide. Now, when the uh, prosecutor opened yesterday, he described how they believed that the son, Paul, was shot in the chest with the shotgun, and then the next shot was under his chin, which obviously blew out the top of his head and blew his brain right out of his, out of his skull. Um, so, again, based on that fact, did he shoot and kill his mother? 
aim the gun at himself, shoot himself in the chest, uh, sustain a gunshot wound to the chest, and then take the gun and put it under his chin. I doubt that very, very highly. Just doesn't sound likely probable or possible to me. So I think that uh, them putting that out there again, uh, you don't have to, uh, when you're defending a client uh, that's accused of a double homicide, you don't have to prove his innocence. You just have to create doubt in the prosecution's case. It's the burden of proof is on the prosecution to prove that you're guilty of the charges that they're bringing against you. Phil, you know, scientifically, uh, really good crime scene technicians, crime scene experts. And I think it was SLED, that's uh, South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, were the main, were the lead people in this case. You could imagine that even the local police department could be compromised. The power of this law firm that had the specter over this entire area, when people in this town are asked to be interviewed by the press, they're like, no, I don't want to be interviewed. Why? Because of the power of the Murdoch family. And they come right out and say that. I don't want to be say something and I'm done in this town. You know, so you can just see it goes back over 100 years when they talk about the family. They were the district attorneys. They call them the solicitor general down in South Carolina. But they were the district attorneys for this area over for 100 years. And then the, they branched off into into law. They were a super powerful, powerful law firm. I can just imagine how many other acts of um, deceit and theft and fraud were, co were connected to this law firm over all those years. Alec has been accused of stealing over $8 million. Who else had their hands in the till? Absolutely, Billy. And when you look at uh, all the, the cases that you went through in the timeline, you know, that's going back to 2015 with the uh, with the with the uh, Gloria Satterfield case. I'm sorry, the Stephen Smith case, then the Gloria Satterfield case in 2018. 2019 is the boating accident. So those are just some of the things that happened prior to the double homicide. Again, he was being charged uh, outside of this case with numerous felonies based on uh, embezzling money from different clients. So I think, uh, you know, Alec Murdoch checked out off all of the boxes of the unethical things that you can do as attorney. He checked about just about every one of them off, uh, embezzling money from clients, uh, stealing from the firm, uh, you know, on and on. And obviously now uh, being charged with this double homicide. Um, you know, we've talked about it, Bill, off the air that we've heard so many different components of his life. Uh, you know, the only thing that we think is missing, and it may be there, we just haven't heard about it, would be uh, what we call in Brooklyn a gumada, a girlfriend. You know, the 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 only angle that hasn't been, uh, you know, checked off, so to speak. We have the money angle, the drugs. Uh, you know, the only thing that we haven't found is there, was there, was he carrying on a love affair or some type of a sexual affair with somebody other than his wife? Uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, if it's out there, it's going to come out. Well, I think the big uh, elephant in the room is his drug addiction. And he actually used that to try to get out from under it early on in this case. I just want to go back to the timelines because some folks were talking about an incident. I, I don't I didn't want to read them all at once because there's so many of them. On August 11th, Duffy Stone, the region's top prosecutor, recused himself from the June 7th murder. So again, uh, 
he wrote a letter to the state attorney general, Alan Wilson, whose office is now prosecuting the case. So they couldn't have a local prosecutor prosecute that. September 3rd, 2021, Mr. Murdoch was forced to resign from his family law firm after his partner said that he had misused millions of dollars in client and firm money. September 4th, Mr. Murdoch called 9-11 from the side of a road not, not far from his home and said that he had been shot in the head. He claimed that the shooter had pulled up beside him as he was inspecting a flat tire. Mr. Murdoch survived with a head wound. September 6th, Mr. Murdoch released a statement to his lawyer saying he had made decisions he regretted and was entering a rehab program. September 14th, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division said Mr. Murdoch had admitted that he asked a former client, Curtis Edward Smith, to shoot and kill him on September 4th so that Mr. Murdoch's surviving son, Richard, who is known as Buster, could collect a $10 million insurance payment. There's more, guys. There's more. But I'm going to stop right there with that so you can just see. it. This is a soap opera. I mean, how many things could this guy do? He hires someone to shoot him in the head so that his his other son, his youngest son, Buster, who was implicated uh, in the Stephen Smith murder, uh, apparently they have information that made them believe that the Murdoch family was involved in that. Uh, they found that out on, with during the investigation of the death of um, Margie and, uh, and, and Paul Murdoch. They found more information that implicated Buster potentially, and I don't want to speak out of school, but this is the information that we're getting. Um, so as you could see, soap opera upon soap opera, and it's just when you talk about the power of this family, it can silence a lot of people. Absolutely, Billy. And, you know, I'm going to just go back to what you were just talking about. Um, on June 22nd, 2021, the State Law Enforcement Division, also known as SLED, opens a homicide investigation. And that case, uh, that's the Stephen Smith case, originally was a hit and run. It was uh, handled as a uh, as an accident by the uh, the, the highway patrol. Uh, it says here that uh, homicide investigation into the death of Stephen Smith as a result of information obtained during the double murder of Alex's wife and son, Paul and Maggie. So again, uh, what was uncovered during the investigation that led SLED to open a homicide investigation? That was uh, considered an accident, uh, you know, a hit and run, a motor vehicle accident back in 2015. However, information was uncovered and now they're investigating that case as a homicide uh, who's going to be charged in a homicide in that case? I'd like to know. Uh, I wonder what that investigation, uh, what stage that investigation is at. But again, all the different uh, salacious things that are going on in and around uh, this perpetrator, this defendant, Alec Murdoch, very, very questionable uh, character, uh, zero integrity in my opinion. So again, his, uh, his lawyer is going to paint him as a, a loving father and family man. However, uh, I think the uh, opposite is true. Uh, he has no integrity in my eyes, and I think that can easily be proven and brought about at this trial. You know, what? You, you might ask, what does an attorney and what does a prosecutor do in a case like this? They're facing off. They're all presenting their point of view as to what occurred. And then there's a thing, of course, called evidence, which evidence could be a slam dunk in this case. And I know we get the uh, 
people pointed pointed us and say you guys are just pro prosecution. Well, this case happens to have uh, a, a huge amount of evidence. Let me just play a little bit of this here. Pow pow! Two shots abdomen in the leg and took her down. Arguing two very different versions of the same story. He didn't do it. He didn't kill Butcher, his son and, and wife. Dramatic descriptions of his family's deaths at point bringing Murdoch to tears. Opening statements given to a jury of eight women and four men who will spend the next several weeks following the evidence. They were shot at close range and they did not have defensive wounds. Prosecutors say forensics will prove Murdoch's guilt after a perfect storm of circumstances came to a head. The state contends Maggie was killed with a weapon owned by the family that was never recovered and that a cell phone video captured at the murder scene just before the time of deaths puts Alec at the scene, contradicting his alibi that he only reached there when he discovered the bodies. And he was there just minutes before with Maggie and Paul, just minutes before their cell phones go silent forever. But the defense argues there's no forensic evidence to tie Murdoch to the murders. No fingerprints, eyewitnesses, murder weapons, and despite the gruesome scene, no blood on Alec when police arrive. You would be covered in blood from head to foot. The defense argues a video taken earlier in the evening showed Paul and Alec enjoying time together and that police pinned Alec as a suspect before investigating even suggesting the crime may have been the work of two people because two different weapons were used. They have pounded that square peg in the round hole and you're gonna hear about it. They've ignored some witnesses. Katie, it appeared to be a difficult day in court. Is there any indication that the rest of Alec Murdoch's family is still supporting him? Well, Lester, for the first time today, we saw several members of the Murdoch family in the courtroom, including his son, Buster. When court adjourned, Murdoch turned to his son and mouthed the words, are you okay, his son? So, guys, you could see, uh, I mean, two different presentations, you know, uh, the prosecutor and the defense. And some of the things that, to me, that the video that puts him on the scene is so, so powerful. He's on the scene earlier, but we're supposed to believe that he left before the killings, you know, when it was so close to the killings. The other you know, thing is the, the weapons were belonged to the Murdoch family. I don't know why they're saying they weren't recovered. Apparently they were recovered on the scene. And I, then there's, there is some ballistic evidence and there is some blood evidence. Apparently there's an overcoat with gunshot residue on it. They just haven't presented it yet. Just like as we talk about um, the Idaho case, they haven't presented all their evidence yet. There is lots of evidence in this case. You know, Billy, two things. I want to make a point. Uh, one, I want to take exception with that. Uh, defense attorney said that based on the crime scene, he should be covered in blood. No, I believe that the shots were fired from a distance far enough away where there could be very minute particles of blood. Uh, you know, some blowback, maybe gunshot residue on his clothing, which I believe they are going to introduce gunshot residue, uh, you know, outside in an open area. I think the likelihood of getting blood on your clothing when you're up close shooting someone is not as great as if you're in an enclosed area. It's got to do with obvious, you know, 
just the, the environment that you're in, uh, the, the concussion would blow back. If it's, there's a wall behind the person you're shooting, it would come back at you. So again, uh, in the, out in the open, I doubt very highly he'd be covered in blood as that defense attorney described. The other thing with regard to the weapons, Billy, I believe that only one of the weapons was recovered, but they said that the caliber of the other weapon, it wasn't recovered, was uh, one of the guns that they did own. That gun is now missing, I believe. I'm not sure about that 100%. Like I said, I think that's what I heard uh, when I was listening to some of the trial today, that the uh, that the one gun wasn't recovered. So that could be. Well, as Pony, thank you for the 1999 Super Chat. How big is this web of criminals? It's big. <laughs> it's real big. And the power, you know, that's the thing where you always hear people say from the academic world, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, you know, think of the power they have. Look, they had to have the state attorney general prosecute this case because the local prosecutor is compromised. And he admitted it. He said, I can't prosecute this case because I know everyone. I know everyone so well. Well, Les Pony, also thank you so much for being a channel member. We really appreciate that. I just want to go back to the gunshot and what the defense attorney was saying, gunshots. There's something called uh, bloodstain pattern analysis. And if you're standing back from someone and you shoot them with a shotgun, think of, of, of momentum and centrifugal force. It's going to be on behind them, not in front of them. Can blood spatter forward? Yes, but the majority of the blood is going to be behind. Exactly. And it's going to create what's called bloodstain pattern analysis. And there's three types. There's high, medium, and low. This is definitely going to be high impact analysis because it's caused by the speed of a speeding bullet, of a speeding round. In this case, I think the shotgun had pellets. So the, the, the gunshot residue and uh, the, the bloodstain pattern analysis, if you, there was a wall behind them, it would be all over the wall and it would be spread out because pellets are being used. There could be as many as 16 or 18 or 20 pellets in that in that shotgun, depending on 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 the buck load that it was. So, the defense attorney is not being correct when he says, "Oh, he didn't have any blood." The blood stain pattern else would be behind him. Absolutely, Billy. I think that was a excellent description of uh, what we feel would be if you were shot with a shotgun blast. Now, like you said, there are different types of shotgun shells. There's a slug shell. There's a double O buck, which is nine balls, basically, like you described pellets. And then there's birdshot, which is a whole bunch of little BBs. I believe that the uh, shotgun blast that uh, Paul took was the double O buck, which is the the, the balls. They're uh, almost like ball bearings. I believe it's usually... Most of the uh, the rounds that I'm familiar with are nine uh, of those BBs, uh, those uh, ball bearing type uh, rounds. So again, uh, the blood would be away from the victim. If there was an enclosed area, like a small room, perhaps some of it could uh, splash back towards the, uh, the perpetrator. But again, that description by that defense attorney that he should be covered in blood 100% not the case in my opinion. And I've seen plenty of homicides where uh, people were shot and I just disagree with him wholeheartedly on that. You know, we had a guy on 125th street and um, he owned a refrigerator store and these four mopes went into the store with, with one gun, but they started um, pistol whipping his employees uh, in a stick up and, uh, and this, I remember the guy's name was Gus. He was an old guy, like 72, 73 years old. And he had this shotgun that he kept in a box 
for 20, 25 years, never touched it. But just in case something like this happened, he shot all four of them, uh, two of them dead and two of them ran out and they went to a hospital, said they were robbed, <laughs> you know. And But the point was, is that he didn't have a drop, a drop of blood on him. And he shot four people, two, as I said, two dead and um, and two, the, two wounded. And that's inside of, and that's inside of a store, Billy, not in an open area. This, this shooting took place outside in an open area on a hunting lodge by a dog kennel. So again, uh, he was that, that individual you're talking about that case, he shot four people and he didn't have a drop of blood on him. Uh, again, out in the open, the chances of you having a uh, blood, uh, splash back at you. I think is much, much less. So yeah, that, that, that defense attorney's description of that, I hope that uh, either in summation or some type of uh, crime scene expert can testify uh, about that statement that he made, uh, you know, obviously experience uh, law enforcement officers, crime scene investigators can make statements about that. And then you can get into the scientific uh, explanation of it based on the patterns that you talked about earlier, Billy. The other thing that to me, and I wish Mike Geary was here, because uh, we'd, we'd use his expression, consciousness of guilt, um, we go. was that he called 911. He was the 911 caller. And he said, oh, my, my wife and son are shot very badly. That was the language he used. They're shot very badly. And uh, the 911 operator asked him his name and where he was. He gave all that. He said it was actually know, a pretty long 911 call. Yes, uh, my name is Alec Murdoch. We, yes. This is we're at this address, and um, he said, "Please get here fast." And that that they're not moving. They don't look like they're are they alive. They uh, they don't look like they're alive. He said all of those things. The other thing he did, which is another consciousness of guilt, was he called his wife's cell phone after the shooting to for as an alibi to show that he thought she was alive. You know, which is another consciousness of guilt thing will give uh, Mike Geary credit for that, you know. And we also have a red herring thrown in there by using the two different firearms, again, to maybe possibly plant the seed in the investigators' minds that two different guns, two different shooters. Um, if you go back to that 911 call and you listen to it, now the description of the crime scene by the, uh, by the prosecutor, uh, describing how uh, you know, the son Paul's head was basically uh, his brain was blown right out of his head. He doesn't indicate anything of that nature. He's kind of saying, well, they're shot badly. And, you know, uh, the 911 operator is asking if they're breathing and he's saying, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, even in a state of shock, I think you would be able to looking at that crime scene, you know, understand and come to the conclusion that your son is dead. I mean, you know, brain blown out of his, his, his head. And, uh, from the description that I saw on one of the news shows, only the front of his face was left. So again, if you listen to that nine one one call, it sounds so staged. It sounds phony. Uh, you know, he's on the phone for quite some time. It took the police a few minutes to get there. Like I said, it was in a rural area at his hunting lodge. So with all of those things put together, um, I think if he was literally stumbling upon his wife and son killed, by someone else, he would have been much more frantic, would have probably, you know, said, no, you know, they appear to be dead. I think the, uh, that really says a lot. And I'm sure that that uh, 911 call is going to be played uh, at the trial. And, uh, you know, the jury will come to their own conclusions on that. 
You know, folks, one of the things that we're also leaving out here is that the son who he, who he's alleged to have shot and killed, his name was uh, Paul, uh, Paul Murdoch. He was the one that was driving the family boat, uh, in, intoxicated, because they have video of him going to a bar drinking, and they had already been drinking all day. And he crashed the boat into a bridge, and a 19-year-old girl uh, was ejected in, out of the boat into the water, and her body wasn't found for like about a week. So her family was suing them. And that may have been part of the motive for uh, Alec Murdoch to kill his son that he felt that he was going to try to get out from underneath this lawsuit, which of course was not going to happen anyway. And his son apparently had already pled guilty. Uh, whether he was going to go to prison for this or not, we don't know. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime stories from a police perspective, you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. Share us with your friends, your family. Make comments. We love to see comments on our videos, and we uh, we love to respond. Um, we also have a Patreon with three different levels. If you want to support us financially, you can go on our Patreon. We also have a YouTube channel members with five different levels, and you can support us in that way. We appreciate all our subs, our fans, and our friends on Police Off the Cuff. So, you know, one of the things also I wanted to uh, bring back up, we're not done with the timeline. I didn't want to read it all at once because it would just uh, be crazy. Um, he was also um, arrested and charged with fraud and conspiracy in that suicide scheme where he hired that um, uh, that uh, uh, Curtis Edward Smith to shoot him in the head. Um, he was uh, His lawyer said that Mr. Murdoch was depressed by the loss of his family and strugg struggling to stop abusing painkillers when he devised this plan and that he could check into rehab. A judge released Mr. Murdoch, but ordered him to surrender his passport. Uh, Mr. Murdoch was arrested on October 14th, 2021 at a Florida drug detoxification center and charged with swindling millions of dollars from the sons of Miss Satterfield. That's the housekeeper who died in their house. He was jailed in Richland County, South Carolina, and twice denied bond. Uh, during a hearing, a judge uh, set bond at $7 million dollars. Mr. Murdoch's lawyer said his client had agreed to pay $4.3 million to Satterfield's family. He remained in jail. The police said they planned to exhume Miss Satterfield's body, having received permission from her family. June 28th, Mr. Murdoch, this is 2022, Mr. Murdoch and Mr. Smith were indicted by the state's grand jury on two conspiracy counts, including a narcotics count related to the painkiller oxycodone. July 14th, 2022, Mr. Murdoch was indicted on two counts of murder, Prosecutor said he fatally shot his wife with a rifle and his son with a shotgun. July 20th, 2022, Mr. Murdoch pled not guilty at a bond hearing, and his lawyers said he wanted to go to trial as soon as possible. December 16th, 2022, a state grand jury indicted Mr. Murdoch on nine counts of tax evasion, and prosecutors with the state attorney general's office said he had defrauded a range of people of about $8.8 million. And of course, January 23rd, the trial has begun. So that's a sort of a lengthy, what a timeline, Billy. What oh my a timeline. God. My God. What a lengthy list. I mean, uh, you need a scorecard 
to stay up on this because it's really too much to really believe. And as I said, and I've said repeatedly, is that if this was a TV series, you'd accuse the writers of being sensational. Absolutely. Well, you know what? Let's talk a little bit about this Curtis Edward Smith. Now, he has been described as a former client, a friend, a relative of Alec Murdoch. Um, you know, he's implicated in the alleged shooting. Now, right off the bat, when uh, the shooting took place, you and I both called it out. We knew that the vehicle in question had run flat tires. Uh, they found uh, a broken, I believe it was a broken pocket knife or something to that effect that was thrown on the side where the vehicle was found, uh, you know, with the, with the flat tire, although the tire could have been driven on and he was allegedly changing the flat tire. Uh, I don't know how much I believe that uh, Alec hired Curtis to shoot him and kill him. Because to me, I think if uh, that were the case, he'd be dead. He just had a, he suffered a very superficial graze wound I believe that Curtis Edward Smith is going to testify against Murdoch in this case, in this homicide case. So again, I'd like to uh, hear what he's going to have to say. Um, I believe he's involved way more in all of the uh, hanky panky that uh, Mur Alec is involved in than we know. I mean, uh, basically, he's only charged in the uh, in the cover up uh, shooting. Uh, you know, when he's changing the flat tire, but uh, who knows what uh, so you're, you're forgetting doing. something about the flat tire. He had tires that wouldn't go flat. Right. Run flats. They yeah. Were, yeah, so I, that was just a total uh, nonsensical story. The other thing was, is all of a sudden he he's hurt and a helicopter shows up on the scene and takes him to a hospital in another state. Right. How did that happen? Right. How did right. that happen? Right. And they, they wanted to get him out of there as soon as possible so that way he wouldn't have to face investigators. Because, you know, in the early stages of anything like that, uh, you know, just the simple questions might implicate him and or catch him in a lie. They didn't want that. They wanted him out of there. You know, again, I knew about those tires because I had the same type of tires. I've driven 40 miles on a, on a flat tire. Uh, those type of tires. So it, again, it was all staged. It was all phony. We knew it right from the beginning. It took a few days before it was revealed to the public. And the uh, I'm sure the investigators were right on, uh, right on top of that. But this guy, this Curtis Edward Smith, he's a real, uh, you know, he's a real intricate part of this case that we're going to find that information from him. I guarantee he has a very shady background. And uh, allegedly, he also supplied Alec with some narcotics, the oxycodone. So uh, he probably uh, has access to all of the skeletons, or not all of them, perhaps some of the skeletons in Alec Murdoch's closets. Absolutely. Here's some questioning of one of the, uh, he's actually called a corporal. There's uh, corporals of police down there. We don't have them in New York City corporals, but uh, let's hear some of the questioning. Dogs, as a homicide direct patrol, the on Hamlet. Okay, and can you just give us a quick background of who you are, where you grew up, and how you ended up in your career in law enforcement? Sure. Um, I grew up in Collington County, went to Collington County High School, went to college at Tri-County Technical College, where I studied criminal justice. Um, once I reached age, I came home, was hired by Collington County Sheriff's Office, uh, left for a couple of years to go work for Jasper County, and then came back to Collington. I've been assigned to road patrol at Collington. Right. And when, what year did you first start working for Collington County Sheriff's Department or began your law enforcement career? 2016. 
And uh, what's your current, you said you're a corporal now, is that correct? Yes, sir. Uh, and what is your current assignment? What, what are your duties? I'm still assigned to road patrol. I'm a canine handler. Right. You say canine. Explain to the jury what that is. So I have a canine that is assigned to me. Um, we respond to certain calls or if we're requested by another deputy for narcotics searches, searches for suspects, things of that matter. Right. Canine is a dog, correct? That's correct. All right. What's your dog's name? Eva. Eva? What kind of dog is Eva? He's a Belgian Malinois. Malamore? Yep. Is that kind of like a German Shepherd? Kind of short-haired, pointy ears. I got you. Short-haired, pointy ears. Right. Uh, is is uh, Evo typically with you when you're out on patrol? Yes, sir. Uh, was Evo with you? Uh, the night of June 7, 2021? Yes, sir. Uh, were you a corporal then at that time? No, sir. I was deputy. And uh, who, who was on the squad that you were on? Uh, Sergeant Daniel Green, Corporal Elise Janicki, myself, and Deputy Cody Peru. So who was your immediate supervisor? Um, it would have been Corporal Janicki. Okay. And then above that is Sergeant Green. So we, you know, we just—I don't want to play the whole thing. There, this is the prosecution questioning. This he's a, he's only a, a six-year veteran. No, he's in his seventh year. Young guy. He's in the canine unit. There were the responders to the shooting. I mean, there's got to be, you know, again, as the evidence starts being put forward, we'll be able to make a better assessment. But right now, I believe that they have a great deal of evidence um, at this murder scene. You know, the ballistics evidence, the blood spatter, one of the guns was recovered. It's at the, the a property, a hunting lodge that is owned by the Murdoch family. So all of this will is going to come out, slowly come out. Um, and, you know, we see what the, the, the prosecutor is trying to lay down a foundation. And at the same time, the defense is trying to create doubt. There's no way this guy did this, you know, that type of thing. And um, I don't know. We don't know right now. We spoke about this before, Phil, off camera. Are they going to be able to use the fact that he stole over $8 million in this murder case? You know, Billy, um, I don't think they'll be able to bring that out in the case because he hasn't been convicted of it. So I think that that might be prejudicial. I'm sure his uh, lawyers will argue it and the judge will decide. But, uh, you know, when you're looking at the testimony of that police officer, now, I don't know how many trials that police officer or that corporal has testified at. But again, uh, a double homicide, a uh, high profile case, uh, you know, there's a lot of reporters in the courtroom. So there's a big audience. There's a jury. It's quite intimidating when you have to get up there and give testimony about uh, things that you did uh, at the scene. Now, one of the things that I saw, one of the questions, I'm not sure if it was that particular officer, but there was another first responding officer. He was asked about tire tracks. Uh, did he know tire tracks in the area where the bodies were found? And he said, yes, he did note that. And they asked him what he did to preserve the tire tracks or uh, you know, uh, photograph them, catalog them. And he said he didn't do anything. So that was one of the things that the uh, defense attorney zeroed in on. What do you mean you didn't do anything? Uh, you know, how could you just leave that there? You know, was there a separate set of tire tracks? So now again, the defense attorney's job is to create doubt. The officer answered saying, well, that's not my job. However, maybe uh, his inexperience in, in court testimony, he could have said, 
you know, it was brought to the attention of the crime scene unit. Perhaps they were the ones that photographed it, cataloged it, or took the imprints, something of that nature. But again, a little thing like that where the officer said, well, that wasn't my job. Oh, it wasn't your job, officer? Whose job was it? You had evidence of something that was a very, very important job, a double homicide scene, and you didn't think it was important enough that it wasn't your job? So again, these are the type of things that defense attorneys will do. And if you catch one juror that says, you know what, maybe he's right, and there's your doubt, you could wind up with a hung jury, which, uh, you know, again, this is early on. There's going to be a lot more evidence in this case. I don't think that that's the way this thing is going to go. But these are the things that happen in uh, criminal proceedings uh, when you're testifying in court. And again, the defense attorney, I'm not trying to knock him. He's doing his job. He's making a point about something that could be, you know, very, very important. Perhaps uh, the tire tracks are of Alec Murdoch's vehicle, but was there another set of tire tracks, maybe from an unknown perpetrator? So those are the things that uh, will be brought out in a case like this. Again, just to bring doubt into the mind of one of the jurors, perhaps several of them. Absolutely. First name Tanish, last name Bryson Smith, B R Y S O N hyphen S M I T H. You're getting an echo, Bill. Maybe take out, take us out. Um, could you tell the jury where you work? Hampton County, you know. And how long have you worked for uh, Hampton County, you know? Seventeen years. And what um, is E911? Um, emergency services dispatch center. And what do you do there? Um, currently, I am in a direct position, just this stated in December. Um, I am over the management of the operations of the 911 dispatch center for Hampton County, including um, budgeting, payroll, um, like the day-to-day operations, and um, record-keeping recordings. Does the um, Hampton County 911 keep records um, in the normal course of business? We do. And um, what kind of recordings are these? Um, we have audio recordings from 911 phone calls, administrative line phone calls, as well as radio recordings from our um, radios from the field. Are all 911 calls recorded? They are. And how are these calls stored? They're stored on our um, NextLog data recording systems. How long are they stored for? Uh, as long as we need them. And who has access to those records? I do. Um, does anybody else? No, ma'am. Just you? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And how do you access the records? Um, there is a database in my office that I have to log into to access any recordings that is requested. All right. Um, sometimes do calls from um, another county such as Colleton County, um, come into Hampton County? They do. And um, why does that happen? Cell phones pick up on the nearest PSAP based upon the location of that cell phone at the time of call. PSAP meaning public safety answering system. Okay. And and why does it pick up on that, on the location and send it to Hampton as opposed to Colleton? Due to the geographical location of a locate of a phone call or a phone when that call is made, that cell phone picks up at that tower and the tower, wherever the nearest PSAP is, mm -hmm. is where that cell phone will be routed to. And what do you do when um, you and Hampton County receive a call from Collin that's supposed to be going to Collin County? We transfer that call out to Collin County. County. 
So interesting because it can also show that where the call emanated from. Right. So her testimony is quite important, even though I'm not, I don't think they play the uh, actual recording here, but we had heard the, the call that uh, Alec Murdoch had made uh, over, over a year and a half ago when he had called 911 and said, uh, my son and um, has been shot very badly. That was the language he used, which I thought was a little bit unusual. Put it that way. Yeah, he didn't seem to be, I, I don't know, I try to think of, God forbid, uh, if I stumbled upon a, a, a relative, I mean, uh, my wife or one of my children, God forbid, uh, I don't think I could be as, uh, you know, together as he was, even though, you know, he sounded like he was upset or whatever, but uh, frantic. I don't think he was quite frantic. And again, describing the injuries uh, shot very badly. Uh, the 911 operator, by the way, did a great job uh, telling him not to touch things when, you know, it was clear that it was a crime scene and telling him, reassuring him that the police run away and stuff like that. But uh, asking if they were breathing, obviously tr to try and institute first aid if there was possible that they were still alive. Um, he's not clear on that. And that's the thing that sticks with me. I mean, you know, if you see a person with their brain blown out of their, blown out of their head, think it's clear that they're not alive anymore and uh just you know uh he put on a facade obviously it was all an act and uh not very good acting in my opinion no absolutely but again that uh besides the uh the ballistic evidence and uh, the evidence of the gunshot wounds uh gunshot wounds tell a story themselves um if the if the firearm was fired very close to the body, there's something called stippling uh, or gunshot residue. And the stippling, depending on how close or how distance away, A, if it's far enough away, the stippling won't exist at all. Right. If it's within two feet, the stippling from the uh, barrel of the gun, which is just tiny particles of gunshot residue that would uh, splatter over the, the body of the victim, that would indicate to the ballistic expert how close the person was when they fired the shot. As I said, if it was beyond two feet, then there would be no gunshot residue on, on the person's body. But that's part of the scientific, the science of ballistics, which is the, you know, the science of a projectile in motion, which is what the definition and um, of, of ballistics is. And they would, uh, there would be an in-depth uh, investigation of the scene, probably using lasers probably using all kinds of high technology stuff because they knew that this was, well, not just that it was a high profile case, but it was a double murder. Absolutely. Billy. And I just want to expand a little bit on what you talked about with the stippling, you know, uh, when the muzzle flash, now people know what muzzle flash is. Generally you watch television, you see a gunfire, there's a flash. Uh, that is, you know, there's a, an explosion that takes place inside of the firearm and all of the gases in the flame are expelled out through the muzzle of the firearm or the barrel. So again, like you said, if you're within two feet of that person, there could be uh, stippling gunshot residue it's commonly referred to also as tattooing. And if you have what's known as a contact wound, a contact wound where the barrel of the gun or the muzzle of the gun is placed up against the person's body, you will have a ring from the, uh, 
Uh, it's also uh, uh, on the outside of the skin and superficially as well. You'll see a uh, an indentation, almost like a uh, a black and blue or a bruising of the skin. Those that's indicative of a contact wound. There are all the different types of uh, you know gunshot wounds that uh, we talk about on the show in the past. So I believe in the opening statements by the prosecutor, he did talk about stippling that we were going to see some stippling in this case. That one of uh, the one or maybe more of the uh, uh, shots that were fired at the victims were of uh, close nature. So again, uh, could there be blowback towards the perpetrator? Yes, there can. Uh, would they be covered in blood as the defense attorney described? I don't think so. No, you know, when you, when you described the tattooing, I once had this idiot that shot himself in the hand and it was a perfect uh, circular imprint in his hand as well as gunshot residue and the actual tattooing of the imprint of the uh, the barrel of the firearm, excuse me, the muzzle of the firearm in his hand. And his story was, oh, I was walking across the projects and I heard gunfire and then I realized I got hit. It was total. It was totally ridiculous. We, we actually locked him up uh, for for possession of a weapon because it was the evidence was so clear that he had shot himself, even though we didn't recover the weapon. We charged him anyway. And that's called uh, tattooing. It has the gunshot residue and the stippling in it. It was it was just ridiculous. It was like a textbook tattooing from a farm. Let me play a little bit of this. Okay. And um, further, you, um, as you're discussing this with them, um, indicate. Let me make sure I get this correct. Um, <clears throat> You indicate there are multiple, or someone indicates to you, there are multiple blackout rounds around Maggie's body in, in the vicinity, correct? Not rounds, but shell casings. All right, shell casings. Now, let me ask you this. When you got there, didn't the uh, fire chief and fire department arrive before you did? No, sir. I was first on scene. Okay. Did they arrive while you were there? The One of the fire rescue workers, I believe it was Barry McCoy. And when you, when you got there, we hear unidentified person and, and in your notes you indicate it was the fire chief I believe that indicated to you um, pointed out to you tire tracks and you went over and looked at those tire tracks and there were multiple tire tracks coming and going correct? I don't know that someone indicated them to me I believe I just saw them okay and um, what did you do to preserve those? the tire tracks nothing um, and you certainly are not an expert in tire tracks. I'm not. So you couldn't tell whether it was multiple vehicles or one vehicle? No. And it may have been multiple vehicles? May have been. Did you take pictures of the track? I did not take any pictures of the scene. Did you instruct anyone to take pictures of the track? No, sir, that's not my job. When the arrived, did you tell them about the track? No, sir, not my job. Do you regret not doing that? It's not part of my job description. So what's your job to even tell them there were multiple tire tracks? If it had come up, if I had. Phil, that's what you were referring to for that. And that was not a, a good look that, that that's that's not my job 
that's not the proper answer to give if you're a professional law enforcement officer. See, see, it's funny because the attorney walked him into something that could create a doubt. He said, oh, could there have been multiple tire tracks? And he said, yes. So that's one. Two, uh, he asked, did you bring it to anybody's attention? He said, no. I mean, even though he's uh, not crime scene, he could have brought it to someone's attention. So that's another thing. Uh, you know, he probably could have alluded to uh, you know, crime scene investigators uh, were at the scene and they would take pictures or they would, uh, you know, uh, catalog that or reference that or take molding of the of the uh, of the tire tracks. And again, uh, the defense attorney could ask him, do you know if, in fact, that was done? And he could say, no, I don't know if it was done. I wasn't present for it or something of that nature. So I'm not trying to knock the officer, but, you know, having experience in a courtroom testimony setting. Uh, you wouldn't maybe answer questions of that nature. Again, even though you're being honest with your answer, you're giving uh, ammunition to the defense to create doubt. And it's unintentional. You don't, you know, you're not intentionally giving them that inf information. However, if you would have answered it in a different manner, uh, you could have shut that down by saying what I just brought out. You know, crime scene was present. They're the ones that handle that. He didn't make that point. He just said, it's not my job. Not a real good answer. No, it's, you know, it's not a good look. And again, I don't like to uh, criticize the officer, but you get, uh, when you've testified a lot at trials, you, and you've get, gotten beaten up by a defense attorney uh, and you've got several times three, four, five, six hours on the stand you sort of learn how to testify and you, you can predict where the attorney is going before he even gets there. But if you also notice, here's this experienced attorney. They, one of the rules of being a good attorney uh, is, to, is never to ask a question that you don't know the answer to, because if the answer get, is different than what you're expecting, you can look very stupid also. And he, he had said something about were there multiple rounds on the scene. I think that was the terminology used. And the officer corrected him and said, no, there were spent shell casings. So he used incorrect terminology also, but he's not the one that's, uh, he's the one that's trying to create the doubt, not, uh, you know, the reverse. Absolutely, Billy. And that was actually a very good answer on that officer's part because he corrected, it's not a round, it's a spent shell casing. Very good point. Um, the other thing is this, you brought out the point and he's an experienced prosecutor, defense attorney. Um, you know, so again, uh, how many times does an officer who's got seven years on the job testify in such a high profile double homicide case? Probably not very often. Maybe he's in traffic court. Maybe he's testifying on some minor offensive cases. But again, to be so uh, schooled on it as the defense attorney is, he's, you know, they do mock trials in law school. They, they go through the experience of questioning and leading a witness. And, you know, it's up to the judge to control what goes on in the courtroom. But a defense attorney, a good defense attorney can, you know, make things sound uh, a little bit different than what the actual person answering the question wants it to sound like or their answer. They, you know, and I've had it happen where they'll ask you the same question with different wording, but it's the same. They want you to, you know, repeat the answer, repeat the answer in the hopes that maybe you're going to uh, change your answer. And again, a lot of times the uh, prosecutor will object and the, uh, you know, the, the, the judge will say, 
uh, that question has been answered and answered, objections sustained, moved on, you know, things of that nature. Or, you know, if the judge feels that maybe you didn't answer it uh, the way that, uh, you know, the judge wanted it answered, he'll say objection overruled and answer the question. Now you have to answer that question. But that's the thing that uh, uh, defense attorneys will do. They'll try to weigh you down. They'll ask you the same question in different ways to try and get a different answer than you made the first time. And then when you answer it differently, they say, well, uh, uh, officer, detective, didn't you say just in the last few minutes, and I can have it read back, that the answer to that question was no. Now you're saying yes. So, again, uh, it tries to uh, create doubt, and they try to impeach your testimony um, that's what their job is. Uh, and unfortunately being an officer, an investigator, a detective, uh, you have to uh, be able to sustain and get through that without uh, losing your cool. Absolutely. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Speaking of attorneys, have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe's a big supporter of Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. He was actually on Fox News this morning defending a NYPD sergeant who was uh, brought up on charges for wearing a unauthorized patch on her uniform. Good luck to Joe on that case. He's a great uh, criminal attorney. Folks, we're going to um, we're going to stay on this case. It's it really is a fascinating case. I can't, um, you know, I think it had more interest when it first occurred. However, it is a fascinating case, and it, it is being internationally covered. And it's hard for any of us to believe that a father could kill his own son. And his wife, and I'm not saying if Alec Murdoch is innocent to proven guilty, he probably has some of the best defense counsel uh, that money can buy right now. I don't know who's paying for it. Is his family uh, still paying for it? Does he still have money left that he could pay for his own defense? You're talking about a defense like this could very easily cost a half a million dollars. And um, who's paying for it? I don't know. I, I really don't know. But uh, we're going to stay with this case. And there's so many other aspects of it. Uh, we read part of that timeline. And we, I thank the New York Times for providing that timeline. Uh, there's so many things that have occurred in this case that really point the finger at, uh, at Alec Murdoch. Phil, final words. Final words. Uh, you talked about this case uh, involving a family that went all the way back to his great-grandfather. You talk about nepotism, the influence, the favoring of relatives, friends, associates. Uh, I mean, think about it. Uh, all the favors that must have been done by this family in the past, uh, favorable treatment. Uh, let's just hope for the sake of Maggie Murdaugh and Paul Murdaugh that there's justice done in this case and that there's enough physical evidence, uh, circumstantial evidence, witness testimony, uh, critical uh, cell phone technology testimony, and uh, we can have uh, justice in this case and he can be convicted. Um, obviously, he's innocent until proven guilty, but with the, uh, I, I don't know if you want to call it a tidal wave of evidence that we see, uh, he's probably, uh, you know, sitting on uh, a double murder conviction here. Uh, again, we'll keep close eye on it. This really is a salacious case. It has 
tons of uh, components to it. And uh, it's just like, uh, as we were covering it from early on in uh, 2021, June, 2021, it was like every day was a new uh, chapter in the, uh, in the saga. So we'll be on top of it. Let's see what the rest of this trial brings. Absolutely. Folks, again, if you're not subscribed to Police Off the Cuff, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. Also, Absolutely. you can uh, support us on our Patreon, uh, two different levels, and we have a YouTube channel membership with three different levels. I want to thank all you guys for tuning in tonight, uh, and we'll give, we'll bring more in regards to this case to you in the upcoming weeks uh, that this trial will be taking place. Have a great night, everyone, and God bless. Stay safe, everyone. One episode just ain't enough.